January 8th, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 144 of the 5049 Podcast. How are you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for another conversation uh, about music, about creativity between myself and another artist. Today, that artist is poet, songwriter, performer, voiceover artist, Pete Simonelli. Pete Simonelli from the band Enablers is with us, and I'm excited about today's show. I'm excited to uh, break in the new year with with an artist who I really admire a lot, and um, today's a good one. Happy New Year. Uh, Thanks for being patient. We just took a little break of about two or three weeks, and it was much needed. Had a lot of year-end stuff to catch up with, and we're back. Got a lot of shows uh, banged out and in the can, and there's a lot of good stuff coming up. All the interviews I've been doing lately, I'm really, really excited about. Uh, More excited than I have been about interviews lately. A lot of artists whose music I really, really love, uh, as well as people who just know how to tell a really good story. Uh, In the coming weeks, look forward to conversations with Norman Westberg of the band Swans, uh, with Chris Cochran. A lot of good stuff coming up. And today, uh, Pete Simonelli, as I mentioned, is with us. Do you guys know the band Enablers? You really should. Enablers is a band that started in San Francisco. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, as, as you'll hear Pete and I discuss today, there's some pretty reliable, lazy ways to describe what Enablers uh, has been doing and does. I'm going to try to avoid that right now. Enablers is a four-piece band. It's two guitars, drums, and voice. As you're going to hear in our conversation, Pete has an awesome voice, his speaking voice. There, there, there's a richness to it. There's a tone to it. And he makes his living using his voice. Uh, he is a published poet. He, he reads his own poetry. Um, and he does voiceover work, which, you know, since I started this podcast um, five years ago, Jesus Christ, I didn't realize it had been that long. Uh, I, you know, though I still struggle with with a lot of stuff with the voice, with the mic, I've come a long way. And doing recorded voice work is a real talent. And it takes a lot of work. I admire anyone who can do it. Because I can tell you from having done this for several years now, it's hard. I struggle with it. So musically, Enablers, uh, you know, they started out, in, I think, 2003 or so in San Francisco. Uh, Pete and the drummer in the band, uh, Sam Ospavat, who plays with Ava Mendoza, um, they live in Brooklyn. Joe Goldring, who you might know from uh, his days in the band Swans. You might also know him from San Francisco band Touched by a Janitor. And Kevin Thompson, also of Touched by a Janitor. And essentially... Um, Enablers is a vehicle for Pete to read poetry over really intense music. The two guitars play really intricate riffs. Um, You know, the band's been compared ad nauseum to the band Slint. Uh, Also, shellac might be a reference point that some people could could grab onto, but that's lazy. Um, and, And I think Pete has been described as a beat poet. You know, the idea of someone reading their poetry over a band um, is very easy. I, I think it's just as easy to 
to hear the kind of riffs um, that the band plays and say, oh, that's it, that's shellac or that's slint, um, it's it's equally easy to just say, oh, the guy's reading poetry over music, uh, you know, where are the bongos, where's the upright bass? It's, it's, it's a lot more complex than that, and honestly, it's a lot more enjoyable than that. I love this music. Um, when I listen to Enablers... You know, it's 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 almost like I, I go into a trance sometimes. Uh, Pete tells a great story with his voice um, and the music. It's it's really one cohesive unit, and it's unlike anything I've ever heard. Um, I I first heard the band, you know, not too long ago, maybe uh, like six or seven years ago. But immediately, it's just like oh, if, if I didn't know that I was looking for something like. You know, it doesn't sound like anything else. Um, and if you just want to appreciate it on a musical level, it's very easy to do. Uh, they're fucking amazing musicians. The riffs are fucking awesome. Um, but it's just, it's got this really unique 3D um, atmosphere to it. And I'm really happy that this conversation happened. As Pete and I realized, we have a lot of mutual friends. Um, and, and we've since hung out. I think I've got a new friend now. You know, sometimes I do these interviews and I have these great conversations with people, but, you know, that's it. We don't ever really talk or see each other again. And uh, I, I think I have a new friend now. Uh, I think we're going to go out for a drink this week. Uh, these are the kind of dudes I like to meet, man, people that tell stories. You know, if you're, if you're going to sit down with someone and, you know, shove a mic in your face and do some talking or, or sit down at a bar and crack open a couple cold ones, you know, I, I hope they're people that can tell stories. That's who, that's who I want to be with. If you want to find out more about Pete, if you want to find out more about the Enablers, um, check out their Bandcamp page. That's probably the best way to do it. They've, they're working on a new record, and and um, but but it would I I can't I can't recommend their old records enough. This is really uh, some you know some of the more enjoyable music that I know of. Go to enablers.bandcamp.com. Check it out. And if you're enjoying the show. Um, Check out the past episodes. Go to 5049records.com slash podcast. You know, there's 143 of them. There's a lot to check out. Uh, and if you're really, really enjoying it, maybe throw in a few bucks. Go to patreon.com slash 5049podcast. This is a listener-supported show. You can make a pledge. You throw in a few bucks every month. It'll get taken out of your account automatically. It's very easy. And that's it. Um, happy New Year. Thanks for being patient. And uh, here's my conversation with Pete Simonelli. So many nights now, he wilts, boiling from inside. But so goes the extremist. But it's still affordable real estate in Manhattan. Yeah, by a long shot. Yeah, like, like if you bought people in New York. I mean, <laughs> oh, I know. It's crazy. That's one way to separate here in San Francisco, too, because nobody wants to talk about what they pay for rent there. Well, you it's can't sort even of get taboo. a place out there anymore. Well, not anymore, but... Like, at all, right? It, it was always... I mean, from the mid-90s on, it was never as cheap as it once was. Are you from, like, born and raised in San Francisco? Close, yeah. The uh, Bay? No, uh, it's called Stockton. Oh. Like, pavements from Stockton. Right. Yeah. I watched an episode of uh, To Catch a Predator that was filmed in Stockton. Yeah, they do. They filmed a lot there. Yeah, a yeah. Lot but, you know, To Catch a Predator. That's where they like lure the child molesters uh, over to the like the sting house, and the dude walks out and is like, "What, what are you is doing that here?" To catch it was that like a... it's like Dateline NBC, but they did a whole series of like oh, right. busting child molesters. <laughs> yeah, well, at, before that, it was the uh, <laughs> it was the foreclosure capital of the 
country for Wait, what years. what do you mean? Like people... Well, you know, the housing crisis. Right. 2008. I mean, there were more foreclosures per capita in Stockton, California right. than anywhere else in the country. Yeah. And, and that's because there was just a lot of people taking out irresponsible loans? Yeah. You know, I mean... Why were there more of them there than, say... Because there's a lot of dumb tweakers and... There's a lot of tweakers out there. Oh, man. It's, it's nuts. A lot it's of bad. tweakers. Oh, a lot. Do you know Trevor Dunn? Yeah. He was telling me, so he and Patton and all those guys grew yeah. up in um, Arcata, Eureka. Yeah, yeah. And he said that when he like he went back to visit and like gas stations have signs. Cheers, Cheers man. Thank you. Um, no tweakers allowed. Like, it's that bad. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot of that shit. Yeah. Yeah, on the east side of Stockton, you see that kind of stuff. But that wasn't there when you were growing up. Oh, yes, it was. Yeah. Meth. Oh, yeah. Why is that? It's a big trucks trucking town, especially on the east side. So in the days before I-5, there right. was 99, which uh -huh. was the former interstate. It was a two-lane, sometimes four, but mostly two, that ran the length of California all the way up into, I think it went all the way up to the Canadian border, uh -huh. up through Oregon and Washington and up. Um. And that runs on the east side of Stockton, so and it was a big trucking route. So, um, like, I had an old friend whose dad was a he he made meth. That's what he did for a living. For his own consumption or for work? For a living? Both. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. he sold all his clients were were truckers. Because he needed something to stay up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. And. Uh, yeah, and he, he, you know, he had this big compound. And if you get on the east side of that town, of Stockton, yeah, it's you. You could confuse it for, you know, impoverished areas of the South, or right. Yeah, it's it's it's. I mean, there and a lot of California is like that, like where Patton and yeah, Dunner from. I mean, up that way, it's it's, loggers it's really and poor. It's, it's yeah, it's poor white. You know? Well, a lot of like the. I mean, in that specific area, like you know, like Humboldt County, where people historically made. A living from yeah. logging and it's a business that yeah. doesn't really exist anymore no well weed took it over really right <laughs> no. but those guys are like fucking cowboys out there oh the yeah weed guys it's yeah, not like it's true it like, really is i knew guys in san francisco that you know were growers and they would have plots and you know they'd walk into the party or something or right. walk into a bar and they're still they forgot to take their fucking guns off they're still right. packing Right. I mean, it's they not... just, they got to wander around and, you know, these motherfuckers shoot people, you know? Yeah. There's no way, I mean, for all, you know, this is uh, a conversation I've had with my friend Toby a lot, mm -hmm. which is like, for the, the amount of people that are, are concerned with, you know, where their food comes from and, and what kind of corporations are behind, you know, various aspects of consumerism and, and how to do that responsibly, to, to then, like, do a bump of Coke or... <laughs> get a joint like for that coke to find his way to that williamsburg bar mm -hmm. like bad shit happened yeah really bad yeah shit. yeah right you right. know i'd rather eat like That's the chicken right. that was like shitting all over itself yeah i mean just it, it would be interesting just to track the economics of it like that of how your yeah. coke got to you yeah totally yeah i mean did you read i mean there are support groups in the country among like i read an article i think it was in the new yorker there's this whole community in mexico in this small town that's just been overrun by narcos uh-huh and they formed a posse because, right. you know, all the cops are bought. The politicians are bought. They're not protected. I mean, people are dying. 
I mean, they just keep sec- setting records for murder. Homicide rates are just through the fucking yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, they, that article mentions, you know, what what's happening at the source. So when that bump of coke arrives at the uh-huh. bar in Williamsburg, yeah, it's just... Maybe you wouldn't be so tempted to do this shit if you had a shred of humanity. Right. Know? I mean, there's, I, you know, I, I grew up... But if you want to go... I'm all for recreational drug use. Sure. We're having a glass of wine right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've heard great stories about people, they go to South America, and they get the, you know, they're in Colombia, and they get the real good shit. Yeah. You know, you don't, you can sleep, you don't feel like a truck ran over your head the next day, you know. And it's super great, because it lasts, you know. Yeah. A couple bumps a night, you're fine, man. You're high pretty much the whole night, you know. I and these people are making it. That's that's my point. They're so getting it from people who are actually direct from the source. Direct from it's the like source. Artisanal, yeah, blow. right, exactly. <laughs> it's single, fucking nuts. Single I mean, origin. Blow. It's an entirely different paradigm there. In well, some cases, I mean, the word humanity is, I think, an interesting component to it. And I grew up with a parent with serious substance problems oh, yeah. uh, and legal problems, and specifically with cocaine mm-hmm. and. For that reason, I was always terrified of coke. I've never mm-hmm. tried it. It's always Good just been this really dark uh, thing to me. And I do Smart, think... Smart, man. Smart. Yeah, well, I mean... And know, hard. To not do it? You're genetically, you know... Yeah, I Kind mean, of disposed to do it. Sure, I mean, I'm definitely... I mean, it could be argued, I guess, but... Well, you know, the thing about it is, though, is, like, I remember watching my dad when he was high on coke mm-hmm. and his friends and the sort of, like... Uh, was he a musician? No, he's a drug dealer. <laughs> Oh, was he really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I really watched it devastate his life. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sure. But just the vibe of the people, like in that specific social circle, especially when they were high, there, it, something about oh, it man. felt like, like there was a deadening. Yeah. An absence of humanity. Yeah. Totally. And I, it's not separate from from the the whole process. The amount of lives that get ruined along the way. I don't think that's it true. is. That's true. That's yeah. That's a much more thorough outlook on it. I think perspective yeah yeah i mean i stopped doing cocaine pretty much by and large because the the stupid scene that right i mean you could you could (laughs) you could practically script it you know what i mean it's just it was the same fucking party every single time but is that because it intensifies like that that aspect. it's a social lubricant in that way but you know alcohol is too sure but like a lot, lot of people when they're having conversations they're just waiting for the other person to stop talking to say the thing that's they're precisely ready to what say. i'm talking that's precisely what I'm just speeds that up yeah and that's all it is yeah that is all at least for me yeah and i just got so it's just it was too predictable did you start fucking around with drugs early yeah i did like like middle school high school I would say middle school, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was about 12 when I smoked my first. I smoked it with my brother, actually. Older brother. Yeah. Those motherfuckers. Me too. I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have an older brother. And, and we were in a parking. <laughs> Fuck, we should do These are good stories. We're going. Uh, are we going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you cool keeping that blow stuff on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea. Oh, yeah. We're... God, you cheeky little fucker. All right. But um, now you... Uh, yeah, I mean, I lost brother. my train of thought. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. We were in. Uh, we were going to see "Let's Spend the Night Together," which was the Rolling Stones concert film. Oh, it was in 1982. I don't know that one. 
Um, it's the one where Mick Jagger's often running around in football pants and knee right. pads. Right. <laughs> Literally. Um, and talk about cocaine, Jesus Christ. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> Cautionary tales or not? Maybe not. Like actually, those guys all. No, but I just remember my brother saying, "If we're gonna see this movie, you gotta, gotta get big. You gotta smoke this joint." Yeah. Did it work the first time? Oh yeah, it was great. I loved that movie. No, but the the joint. Yeah, it did. Yeah, but the second time it didn't. Strangely enough. Right. Yeah, I just didn't get high the second time. But that first joint, you're like, "Oh, this is. I'm into it." It was pretty amazing. Yeah. 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 It was from Humboldt. Right, right. Which, you know, growing up, Humboldt was king. But, I mean, did you... I, I had an older brother who... I mean, yes, he, I, he continues to exist, mm-hmm. uh, and an older sister. But my older brother, like, really was, like, a troublemaker who, you know, opened a lot of doors for me yeah. and to the point where I had, like, no supervision and, you know, was trying, like, psychedelic drugs at a really young age. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, how were, and I was, you know fortunate to have a parent who wasn't really paying attention <laughs> yeah right. not that he would i mean you're a potential customer right? <laughs> that's terrible i'm sorry no, I'm just, but i mean like, how, how do you get away with it at like 13 years old like, yeah that's true yeah i mean in the case of growing up in a place like stockton a lot of it was just boredom yeah i mean and if i'm gonna call this a downfall in any way it's i the irony is is that it was books that did it that got you excited about drugs well not so much drugs specifically but about the outside world this world that i i could only taste through books and i wanted to taste it in my real life and the closest thing to get to it uh was through drinking and drugging and yeah and you know hanging out with people that were also like to read and listen to different kinds of music yeah check you know, it out just wasn't that wasn't uh what do they call it classic radio mm-hmm. classic rock radio mm-hmm. you know, two for tuesdays and all that so as i got a little older you know late teens 16 17 18 um you know the drugs began to get a little more exotic but it was it was it corresponded to this need of uh just wanting to get out and mm-hmm. that was the only way I knew, really knew how to express it before being able to leave. But did you, you know? see where the drugs, like, I mean, I, you know, I got, it, it's what you said just really, it sounded very familiar to me. Yeah. You know, I got yeah. really into, you know, yeah, William S. Burroughs, yeah. Hunter S. Thompson. Exactly. This yeah. kind of stuff as a young teenager. Right. And, and for me, drinking and drugging had this, always has always had this component to it of, of uh, wanting to, you know, do things in the extreme, wanting mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. you know, access parts of, of my mind. That's right. That, you know, That's were absolutely not initially right. there. That's right. So that was... Yeah, I was, I was conscious of that kind of, uh, you know, altering or expanding your mind and things like that. I was very conscious and yeah. sought that. Yeah. Know? And, you know, ultimately, I suppose you could say that was just some sort of stupid justification but it was true. I mean, I really want, I was after, you know, if you, there was just something about, or there was a corollary between the kinds that, you know, this different kind of music and, you know, you wanted to know how they came up with those ideas Mm -hmm. and you could, because you knew they were smart. You knew that they were intelligent Mm -hmm. and, um, entertaining people and, and, 
but I was just kind of after that exoticism of the whole thing, you know. Yeah. You know, I I got tired of just reading about New York City in a book. Right. You know, I wanted to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to be out in the world, you know. What was the New York? I didn't want to read about Paris anymore. I wanted to be there. I wanted to be in Africa or whatever the case may be, you know. So did you get the hell out of Stockton first chance you could? Pretty much, yeah. you went to SF? Well, it was actually my old man who kicked me out. Really? Yeah. In high school? No, I was uh, 18. Yeah, he literally, he was a lawyer and he called me into his office. (laughs) And he was kind of a big fish in a small pond, so he knew a lot of cops. Right. And, And I, you know, I was just getting busted all the time. Oh, yeah. You know, and, uh probably out of a need to get attention you know <laughs> some deeply you know psychologically rooted thing yeah. you know desire it's just can you see how much i'm fucking up and how much i got to get out of here and that's what my old man said he said pete you got to get out of this fucking town like he said that like the sheriff or like the compassionate guy like hey a like- little bit of both yeah. i would say i think he was just getting embarrassed and he was getting sick and tired of yeah i Drove your kid home, you know, busted your kid in the park with a bag of weed and right. a bunch of beer again, you know. Right. And I think uh, just a combination of those two things. And the compassionate side, because he knew, I think he recognized some of himself in me. Because mm-hmm. my, my old man was, he still is kind of a, um, he's very artistic, you know, he's always appreciated the arts. Yeah. And so I think, and by that time I had already started writing and he knew that I was a very avid reader. He was supportive so, of, of So he was supportive of it, yeah. And I think he addressed it, as you said, on that compassionate side because he knew that this was, you know, what was driving it was larger than the actual problem, really. Yeah. You know. So, yeah, I, I, I think he did recognize that. It's got to be tough sometimes for parents with creative kids because I think there's often a tendency to engage in activity that could be harmful. Mm -hmm. But, you know... It's part of the package. It's part of the package. Yeah, it's just that curiosity. It's just that natural... Yeah. You know? It's got to be a little tough for them. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean... I I would hate to be the parent of an addict, you know? But, but, I mean, like, when you were a kid, if you got interested... Because you can't help but blame yourself. Really. All you can really think about being a parent is how did I let my kid somewhere somewhere along the way I did something wrong. Do you wrong. have kids? No. No, me neither. But I you know, I know I have plenty of friends who are parents. Yeah. You know, and uh you know, it's just it's the sins of the father and all that. Everybody wants to parent in a way that they were not. You know, that's the greatest fear is you want to be a better parent than your parents were. Right. And uh, just to see, you know, your baby struggling oh, in it's this, got, it's in this desolate smash your state heart. of affairs. You yeah. Know, it's just got to be, I can't think of anything more crushing, you know. Yeah. Outside of seeing the kid die because, you know, death is that much closer and you're, you, right. you're not supposed to outlive your kids, right? Right. Right. So, it's all so. It's all of those things. So know? he told you to hit the road. Yeah, he told me to get out of there. And did you go to college, or you just? I didn't go to college. I mean, I was in and out of uh, community college. Mm-hmm. That was the other thing too. Is I I literally could not 
stand or tolerate being in a classroom anymore. I hated it. It was weird. I mean, yeah. I would suddenly get super drowsy and tired, and I, you know, right. I was physically repelled. Right. But you know, my Even body in the, just in take the literature over. classes. I couldn't. The... Well, yeah, especially in the literature classes, really? actually. Well, the creative writing classes. Right. I took a couple, tried to take a couple of those. I would drop out of those. But even like, you know, I, I remember I had this one teacher in high school and I, I had her in 10th grade as my English teacher and I hated her at first. But by the end of the year, I made sure that I had her in 11th grade and 12th grade. Mm. And she, I mean, she meant the world to me. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that she did for me because I, she, she recognized that I was really into reading and I was really into um writing and yeah. and you know she was like oh that's great that you're into all this like beat stuff and da, right. da, da, da. she's like right. but you really need to read you know heart of darkness that's right you really need to read that's 1984 right. you really need to read like i had a teacher like this in high school yeah as well. portrait yeah. of the artist as a young man yeah and, like these books changed my life that's right uh um, yeah and i so appreciate what was her name joan jones joan jones yes yeah, wow like a seventh day she call her jj I, she was a seventh day adventist yeah yeah <laughs> jesus christ but just she loved she loved literature. She loved seeing young kids like get ideas. She loved you know. That's really bizarre. Where it, where were you growing up? That was in rural Georgia. I grew up upstate, and then I went to high school. Yeah. Wow. What county? In Georgia. Yeah. Union County. Oh, Do you know yeah. Georgia? <laughs> uh, I, I yeah, I've been there. Yeah. Uh, I've got a really good friend from Georgia. It's a pretty miserable place. He was. You said most of rural Georgia is. So south, right? I so mean, Georgia is basically like if you go to Atlanta, which is you know, yeah. pretty. It, it's a it's not mid state. It's like the northern part of the state. Yeah. South Atlanta is almost entirely black, and then right. all the way down to Florida is entirely black. If right. you go north Atlanta, it's like entirely white, and then mm -hmm. up to you know like the Tennessee border That's is like right. entirely white. Oh, okay. If the state is, I thought it was the other way around. Yeah. All right, okay. So I was in the white anyway, part. You were in the white part. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so was Matt. You know, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> but so you went to hello matthew where, where did you go to from stockton so from stockton i went strangely enough uh that same brother who got me stoned for the first time <laughs> he had been in the military down in san diego oh, which is a huge yeah. well he was he has his own story right he was a middle kid so he was that angry middle kid acted out a lot but and my folks had kind of forced him into the military. Mm -hmm. They said, you do this or... To, to sit, get his extra. To get his, yeah. Because he had been in San Diego. He was going to San Diego State, and then he was dropping out and wasn't doing so well. And so they made the decision. They, they basically said, you're going into the Marines. So my brother had just gotten out of the Marines by this time. This is like 1989. And he was living in this uh, this town called Carlsbad, which mm -hmm. is in the north part of San Diego County, in a house, and a room opened up there. So I moved in down there, and um, and then I lived. I ended up living in the, in the space of a little more than a year. I lived in about three different places, two of which were with my brother Dan. And uh, and then I, the last place I lived was with my girlfriend at the time, who had actually moved there from Stockton. And then that just all fell apart. Mm -hmm. And uh, a, I had a very good friend 
who had moved away pretty much the same time I did, but he had gone to San Francisco, and so I, we were staying in touch quite a bit. And he was in a situation in which he wanted to get his own place. He was also living with a girlfriend, but it was like six, six people in a two-bedroom apartment or something. And so he and I just started talking, and I eventually, because I hated San Diego. I, I hated it. Yeah. Um, and I just started doing the same stupid shit just in a kind of different way. Yeah. And, um, but I wrote a lot when I was down there. That's so you had already, you already knew, like, I'm, you're going to write. Yeah. 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 And, uh, so I'm about 19 at this point. 19, Writing poetry, 20, prose. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, uh, Tom was his name and we ended up, I moved back to Stockton for like a couple of months. I moved back into my mom's place. Uh -huh. But I would go to San Francisco frequently, and Tom and I would look for apartments, and eventually we found one. And then I was there for the next 18 years. In San Francisco? In San Francisco. Proper, like in the Mission or... Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most of it, most of it in the Mission. I lived in the Hate for a year, and I the last five years, I want to say, was I was actually living with Kevin, my bandmate, Thompson, uh -huh. and his girlfriend, Patricia, and... They had a house in the southern hump of San Francisco, a neighborhood called Visitation Valley. Uh huh. Wait, wait, but going back to San Diego, mm -hmm. when you so you you lived with your brother just after he got out of the Marines. Yeah. Was it strange to see? Was there a transformation that you you saw? No, him? he was really happy to be out. <laughs> yeah. No, he was partying again. And, Good. Yeah. No, he was great. He grew his hair out all over again. Right. And, you know. So they didn't they didn't get him. <laughs> he started smoking weed again. Yeah. He was having a good time. But when you get to San Francisco, this is what, nineteen ninety, you said? Nineteen ninety, that's right. San Francisco was happening. Mm. Like underground culture in San Francisco mm. was thriving. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And were you also attracted to the to the music or was it like you went sure. straight to City Lights and Yeah, I uh, you know, as a kid. I would go to San Francisco a fair amount to see shows, or but I would always have to go to City Lights. It was like a mecca. It's a holy site. Yeah. I just went for the first time about a year ago. Oh, really? Yeah. Good for you. It's, it's a, a great bookstore. Objectively, legitimately. It's a great bookstore. It's yeah. a great bookstore. Yeah, it really but is. the fact that Lawrence Ferlinghetti owns That's it. That's right. It's been this. He's still going, isn't he? It's nuts. He's like 95. I was going to say, he's, he's got to be close to He's closer to 100 than he is 90. I, I used to see him deliver mail. I was working in North Beach once, uh -huh. and he used to... Uh, Wait, deliver mail? Yeah, he would bring these packs. It was probably... Like uh, as a day job, he was a mailman? No, 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 no. Oh. He was just delivering City Lights mail, I would right. I would gather, but he would have sacks of mail. It was probably return submissions, and right. you know, they have a press. And, right. And... Uh, Did you ever say hi to him? I couldn't. I was too shy. Yeah. I remember he looked right at me once, and I, it was... It was terrifying for me. Yeah, you know, it's crazy when you see those. And things. for me, it was it was just it wasn't so much Ferlinghetti. I mean, I, I liked I liked him well enough, but mm -hmm. it was the fact that you know, I mean, here here is a former friend of Burroughs and mm -hmm. Kerouac. You know, I, I was much more stunned well, or he's trained also like on the that administrative force. Like he really, yeah. It's quite responsible for yeah, a lot of right. us knowing that yeah, stuff. Yeah, banned books. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, he gave a lot of people a lot of life. You know, yeah. he really did. So, and even then, at that time, you know, I was like twenty-one at the time. And yeah. So I was still. I mean, you're still kind of a teenager, really. Yeah. 
Absolutely. You definitely have you know? more in common with teenagers. So I was still starstruck by these kinds of people, yeah. even though I'd stopped reading the beats. Yeah. Pretty much, they were behind me even at that early age. Yeah, I generally, like yeah, out I of high school. Is a, that's I mean, right. You, you yeah. I read them all in high school, you know. That yeah. Was, so you know. did you immediately, like, I mean, I, I, I did you, how can I say it? Does the is the was the city of San Francisco? It's its history, yeah. its its smell, its yeah. culture, its fabric. Like, was it enticing to you? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's a I, dirty uh, city. Yeah, In the that's best true. Way, and yeah, and it was even dirtier then, uh, because it was cheap, and you know, mission. The mission was dangerous. You know, there's there's a lot of similarities between you know people's stories of the Lower East Side yeah. and East Village here. It was just kind of that version, West Coast. You right. Know? Um, but it was cheap. You know, you could get a burrito for like $3.50. You could get a pint of beer for 3 bucks. Mm -hmm. There were venues all over the fucking place, mm -hmm. you know, all over the city too. And so, I mean, I can remember going to five, six different sets a night, you know, and you spending... You were that into the music. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I had a lot of friends and... After a couple of years, there was a good friend of mine, a guy by the name of Jimmy Brewstus, who, is it okay to name names? Totally. Okay. Yeah. Who um, I started running around with. Uh, he took me in. I had been evicted, and he took me in, and I lived in the place, his apartment. And uh, I just began, he and I became very close and he was already really well established and knew a lot of people in the local music scene mm -hmm. and i had been there by that time i'd been there about three years and uh you know i was i was participating in it i knew about bands you know like i was a big huge toiling midgets fan i don't know okay. if you ever heard of them but um i would go see them quite often even when Goldring. You know, one of the enablers guitarists yeah. was playing with them. He played bass for them for a short time. And, uh, yeah, but I didn't know any of these people. And it was through right. Jim that was kind of the gateway drug, you know. I, I just started meeting left, right, front, and center, you know, because we we're also living in a place that uh, we put up people, a lot of bands, touring bands for the mm -hmm. night. You know, they would play San Francisco and crash at our place. So it was, Yeah. So I got to know a lot of people that way. And just artists in general, it just opened up a whole door to all these other writers and yeah, mostly musicians, but there were a lot of writers and painters and um, playwrights, you know, you name it. Yeah. You know, it was, it was, and the bars were chock full of these people, you know. Like a good bar crowd. Yeah. Yeah. Really good bar crowd. That's right. Yeah. You know, heavy drinking, but freewheeling and, and, uh, intoxicating in more ways than one sure, really you, find you know conversation oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah and 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 a huge a lot of freaks a lot of freaks yeah who did a lot of mediocre things sure sure <laughs> you know what were some of the bands that you were checking out uh well i mentioned toiling midgets uh -huh. there was a band called uh steel pole bathtub oh yeah yeah Fuck. yeah they were great i haven't thought about them in a minute yeah i saw them live Oh, you did where? Here? No, in the 90s, I saw them. Yeah. Oh, you were them. in Atlanta? I, I saw them open up for Faith No More. No kidding. Because yeah. Francisco bands. Yeah, Mike and I, Mike Moraski and I have since become friends. Yeah. Joe and I did his floor 
once. Okay. Because <laughs> he got, he made a shit ton of money, didn't you, Mike? Yeah, and he, Steel Pole Backup. He's an, no, he's an animator. Oh. And he worked on, uh, no, Steel Pole, he didn't make shit. <laughs> but uh, he became an animator, mm-hmm. and he worked on those first, uh, not Harry Potter, but what the Lord it? of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Yeah, he probably made a few bucks. Yeah. So next thing you know, Moraski's buying this house that's on a cliff. Right. And I'm not kidding. You know, really nice. It's great when your friends get that money. Yeah. Then he put us to work. You know, yeah. he paid us really well. It was, yeah, it yeah, was yeah. fun. But uh, speaking of steel pole, actually, I have another good friend who loved. I mean, those guys walked on water as far as they still do. Right. And uh, he's going to turn 50. I think this coming year, and he has a standing promise from Mike to play on his fiftieth birthday. Okay, we will. Yeah, we'll see about that. <laughs> but you know, they've had this agreement for the last Jesus, maybe close to ten years. You know, so I hope he stays good on. I do too. That would be a lot of fun. I feel like San Francisco has got a good. More, I mean, I don't know. More, certainly more than New York or other places, or maybe not New York, but like a history of specifically with rock music, mm-hmm. people bringing like a literary concept to it. Whether it's like someone like Mark Kozelik or uh, yeah. or even like Eugene in a way from Oxbow, yeah, sure. you know, like yeah. and what you you know what you're doing with Enablers, like yeah. it feels specifically San Franciscan to me. Oh, really? Yeah, I uh, I don't know about that. No, I, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just something I've never really thought of yeah. or thought about. I, um, well, there were a lot of literate types, you know, like I, you remember Jawbreaker? Yeah. You know, Blake is a writer, uh-huh. you know. Um, uh, Steel Pole had a band. I remember they had a song called The Typewriter, I think. Okay. You know, I know Mike dabbled in writing. Um, I think... You know, I think there were a lot of people, now that you mention this, I, I can kind of remember people who started or got into bands as kind of a default to writing. Right. They they somehow figured out that they're never going to write the, as well as they want to, or they didn't have the discipline or whatever, and it was just easier to pick up a guitar and go, yeah. you know, go do it that way. Right. You know, still expressing yourself in some way, but... Much more immediate. Yeah, I mean, I knew, you know, I don't want to call them frustrated writers. I don't want to say that, but, but I will say that a lot of writers are frustrated musicians. I, man, if you're not you know, if you're not frustrated as an artist, like, yeah, yeah, that's true. But <laughs> I don't know what to do with you. That's true. We, yeah, <laughs> you got nothing to talk about. <laughs> Maybe uh, I don't know, like. <laughs> I always, you know, there's there's always great recordings of. Actually, one of my favorite recordings of someone reading poetry is, mm. uh, and of all that beat stuff, like mm-hmm. one poem that has stuck with me in a way that that very few have is Kaddish. Uh huh. Right. And there's a recording of him uh, yeah. of Ginsburg reading that That's in right. San Francisco. That's right. And you know, it's it's an incredibly powerful poem on its own. Mm-hmm. But hearing the author of the poem who is the son of the subject of the poem That's right. in this very personal mm-hmm. exchange. It He was always very good to Lewis, wasn't he? Yeah. He was the good son. Yeah, yeah, Alan. yeah. He really yeah. was. If uh, it hear, hearing the poet's voice is 
something as like 20th century listeners and readers or 21st century mm-hmm. that we're like so fortunate to have. Oh yeah, sure. You know, could you imagine if that you... was a really ripe time and, you know, not just the beats either. I mean, it goes well and above yeah. that, um, you know, you look at the so-called New York school of poets that were, you know, people like Frank O'Hara, John mm-hmm. Ashbery, James Schuyler, that was happening. Um, you know, Kevin and I talk about this pretty frequently when we get together is that you don't see those kinds of standards anymore. I mean, it was really difficult to publish a book, mm-hmm. you know, to get a book published. It, and it's still somewhat difficult. But I think the standards were such that because the education educational system was still pretty good in this country, mm-hmm. you know. And there was a lot of money in this country. It was a very wealthy nation, you mm-hmm. know, post-war. And and I just think that we were a much more literate place mm-hmm. at that time. And um, and that's what created those standards. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you look at jazz music of that era. You look at really anything and... I think that's that's why that th- those things last and are so enduring, mm-hmm. you know, and are in college curricula and, yeah, you know, one thing and another and yeah, yeah, still yeah. pique young people's interests, you know. Um, well, I mean, a lot of that stuff, specifically the stuff you just mentioned, is there. It's still like, you know, you can listen to a Coltrane solo. Like to this day, no one's doing it better. That's right. Like literally, and, and just in tone alone. Yeah, you know. Yeah, to this day, you, you he's know. the guy. Yeah, you know, so that's like that right. stuff is still very ripe. That's good to know. I've always been curious about that because I, I mean, I'm of that belief. Yeah, you know, but you're in the world. Yeah, you kind mean, of. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, know, there's. I, I, I will say this. I don't think any saxophonist would disagree with me. Mm. There's probably you know one or two pains in the ass out there that would disagree with sure, me. Sure. Yeah, yeah. There always is. Basically, but. that's you know an undisputed fact. Yeah, that's good to know. I mean, I've always been kind of curious about that. About I've that's... actually been embarrassed to talk about jazz musicians sometimes. Really? Yeah, because oh man, <laughs> man, really, what do you think of Coltrane? Well, do you I'm... like jazz? Oh, I love jazz. What do you like listening to? I mean, can you imagine? What do you think of Coltrane, man? You is know? he cool? Is he hip? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is he that good? Could he really yeah. play? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, just because. Because I I don't really I, I mean I really enjoy jazz but I I'm not even enough of a musician let alone a jazz enthusiast to really talk music. I the only thing I can I approach it that. from is the feeling. I can't I can't approach the language of it. For instance, the jargon. The sure. I mean, you know, you might not be able to talk about trading fours, but like that's right. You could talk about that's the first right. time you heard a Love Supreme and like sure what emotion you had. That's right. And that's far more compelling. A you think so? In yeah. My opinion. Okay. Yeah, no? I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I've had, you know, hundreds, you know, countless great conversations just about music alone. Yeah. Just about John Coltrane alone. Yeah. You know? Um, I mean, you know, you want to talk about, you know, there's that live recording of um, My Favorite Things uh-huh. in Japan. Uh-huh. Right when he was getting sick. Right. And the first time I heard that, I was driving. And uh, I was on the freeway, I remember. And I used to be a car courier 
in San Francisco. Oh, you would drive those trucks with all the... I, not a truck. I was using my own car. Okay. But it, you're like a bike messenger, but you were in a car. Mm. You'd go bigger distances, right? So, um, and that, there's a great station out there. I hope it's still going. It's called KPOO, K-P-O-O. Okay. And one day a week, I think it was Tuesday afternoons from, uh, I think, 1 to 2 or 3. They called it the St. John Coltrane Hour. Yeah. And they would just play Coltrane recordings yeah. for, the, for the whole show. And I used to listen to that station quite a bit because it was a great R&B station and, as well as jazz and other things. But uh, So this version of that song came on, and it just hit me. It just cracked me open so instantly the expression of that playing the friendliness of that playing and i mean in the sense that this is somebody who's telling you what's going on in a way that you can only understand instinctually mm -hmm. and i also mean that it's somebody that you're instantly attracted to and you want to know what's going on in this person's head mm -hmm. like you would a friend mm -hmm. Because there's so much joy and despair and all of these conflicting things, you know, to my ears, going on in that song, mm -hmm. in that version of that song. And I just started bawling. I just started crying, yeah. you know. And uh, I had to pull over. I really had to get a hold of myself. Yeah. I listened to the, you know, the end of the song. And I mean, that's the right reason. I think that might have been the greatest listening experience I've ever had. I mean, certainly the most thorough. Sure. You know. And uh, I just felt alleviated. I felt lightened afterwards. Yeah. I mean, physically. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how many times can you say that I mean, music moves you. I think it's the right. most immediate it's, it's art form. It's the idea. It's supposed to do that. Yeah, yeah. and I think, I don't think there's any other, any other art form that can do it as quickly and as... <sighs> deliberately mm -hmm. um but i yeah like i said i'd never had a listening experience like that and um to the point where i felt you know it was almost like you uh, i don't know maybe what uh a strong heartfelt catholic feels when they come out of uh, what do you call it? Confession. Right. You know, it was a sense like that. Yeah. I, and I, I, mean, I don't know why. I still don't to this day know why. I mean, I think I, I have maybe some ideas why. Mm. I, I've, I, I had that, I've had that exact same experience with really? music of John Coltrane. Yeah. yeah. And I know a lot of people that have. And That's true. Yeah. You know, to talk about it just like from like a zoomed out Mac, you know, sort of bird's eye level, you know, he, he certainly... Worked endlessly to develop the that's, most articulate voice that he could. That's right. You know, there's just absolute that's you right. know, clarity in every clarity and intention. In yeah, there's so much to be learned phrase, from that guy. Yeah. Every note that he played. Yeah, because he was that that studious. Yeah, and yeah. with a genuine desire that's right. to make the world around him a better that's place. That's right. Yeah, through deeply his art. spiritual man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, he really like for as complex as a lot of his playing is, for as complex as a lot of that music is. You know, I, I really believe that he was. Looking to make the world a better place. Sure, you know? absolutely. Yeah. Very That's what a love supreme is all yeah. about, right? Uh, yeah. And 
so when you think about like a piece of music that unfolds, you know, especially you know the period of time you're talking about, mm-hmm. they play pieces, they stretch them out for twenty minutes mm-hmm. at a time. Mm-hmm. That's a that's an arc where you have this real uh, ability to sort of take the listener, you know, on a, on a full experience where you can you can draw certain you know. Oh, I think you're allowing them to participate. Yeah. You know, I don't think he. Do you think he really knew what he was going to do next at any given moment or even second? I mean, I think he knew that music was important enough. No, I mean, when he's, in, he, when he's in the midst of a tune is what I'm saying, you know. I don't know. Like, there's that great joke when he, the second time he was playing with Miles. Uh-huh. Um, this, they actually, I'd heard this joke before, but it's in that new doc that's, you can watch, watch it. it. I d- it's okay. I got so angry. It's, it's I turned right. it off after like nine minutes. But they mentioned this joke, you know, uh-huh. and it's the second time he's playing with Miles, and um, you know, Miles gave him a lot of gave him a long rope, yeah. gave him a lot of leverage. He was fucking up a lot when he was with Miles. Not the second time. He'd cleaned up when he okay. came. He was just there for a very short time. Okay. And it became apparent to everybody that he had outgrown even Miles Davis. That's how good he was. Right. Know? And so. He would just play and play and play and play, and Miles didn't really care, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, one day Miles asked him, he said, because I guess guys in the band were bitching about it or something, right. and he jokingly asked him, he said, you know, why why don't you stop playing? And Coltrane says, uh, I just, I can't find the right place to stop. <laughs> and, which is beautiful, That's you know. Easy. Which is, it's that's basically art in a nutshell right there. Yeah. Certainly in writing, you know, you, you don't finish something, you abandon it, right? Right. R- fuck, right. And uh, uh, Miles says, well, why don't you start by just taking the horn out of your mouth? It's <laughs> <You know? laughs> so good. It's so, it's so good. <laughs> and, and, you know, these guys are so fucking smart, you know? Giants. They're just... They're just fucking giants. I mean, even their humor is brilliant, you know? Yeah. I mean, God, they're so fucking smart. It's just... Well, did you did you read that... Because that... that joke is so funny on so many different It fucking levels. rules. Yeah, I know. <laughs> just... But did you read that Zukovsky uh, poem, A? Uh, n- no, at least not that I remember. What? That's it right there. It's it's like a nine hundred oh, page poem yeah. that he wrote over the course of like forty or fifty years. Wow! And it's his life's work. It's like yeah, he that's kept, it. You know, going back to the poem. Yeah. Wow. Jesus. I've I've tried. I've tried. Like. Well, there's Whitman too. You know, he kept revising right. Leaves of Grass. You know, he was never satisfied. With it. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I I do it with poems quite a bit. You know, even stuff that we've recorded and, or yeah. I've published, you know, I'll go back to it. And I'll just, ah, it's, it's just... but when, so when did you first realize that it's okay to do that or that you gave yourself the permission to do that? Uh, probably when I heard that Whitman was always mm-hmm. revising. You know? Yeah. You know, there's several different different editions, literally different editions of Leaves of Grass because he would go in and change things and tinker with them. Yeah. And if... Walt Whitman can do it. Why can't you, you know? Right. So. Right. There's just something, you know, it's, maybe it's some need to be perfect or you're chasing after some kind of perfection, but you just know when you're looking at it that there's something, it's missing something. Uh Uh-huh. You can't really necessarily say, you just think, it's like a recipe. Yeah. 
You taste, you know, you taste, you taste, you taste. You taste. Salt or lemon. Ex- yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's missing that salt or lemon. Right. You don't, not really sure where or why or how, but you know it needs that. Yeah. And and uh, then you spend another, you know, three years of your fucking life trying to <laughs> add the salt and the lemon. You know. Man, I. Uh, do you write every day? I try to. Yeah. Do, do you feel yourself going batty? But I don't, don't want to. No? No. You don't want to work every day on it? Not really. Why not? Uh, number one, I'm just too lazy. Um, number two, um, I, I'm not the forceful, urgent writer that I once was at a younger age, I think. Right. I, not that I'm waiting around for inspiration or any of that nonsense, but I, I'm... Uh, like I said, I guess tinker is the word. I like tinkering. Yeah. You know, I don't really sit down and write 40 lines anymore at all. I spend a lot of time on poems, you know, and I have mm. upwards of a dozen of them on the go all the time. So mm-hmm. I'm just kind of jumping from one to the other. And, and, uh, if I'm not, if I'm not actually doing it, I'm certainly thinking about it. Right. So. I don't know. You can make a case. But doing it. I, well, I was just going to say, you yeah. can make an argument for that or not. You know, if you're not actually physically doing it, I mean, then you're... I, okay, from music, from a musical perspective, yeah. that's doing it. I'm, I'm not a poet or writer, so I can't... But really? I, just thinking about music is... Is doing it. You think so? I mean, for me, it is. I'm, I'm you know, I, I always... I have, mean, you're actually thinking of an arrangement or... Or just, you know, I've always got... Or just going, musing on it. Just going in my head. You know, I'm yeah. working on two projects right now, and they're, you know, even when I'm not actively sitting with the clarinet, sitting with the pen and paper, sitting with the computer. You know, today I was making fucking drinks in a bar. That's right. And as it was slow, I was thinking like, oh, you know what would be a cool title for that piece? You yeah, know? yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, well, and then you write it down, no? Right. Yeah. Yeah, or, you know, or then I say, well, where, where did that come from? You know, like, oh, that was from that book that I read. Let me open that book. And yeah, see, you know, right. Find something else in there. Right. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to, you know, I always try to have, you know, in the case of enablers, I... Uh, I always try to have several on the go, you know. So when did Enabler start? That start that band started in San Francisco. Yes, it did. Um, we started in. It didn't actually. Should I just give you the full? Yeah. Oh, I mean, did, was, did you get together with those guys and say, "Hey, I want to read poems"? And yeah, it was kind of like that. I was working in a bar. I used to be a bartender myself, <laughs> and so I was working in a bar that was one of these popular places among a lot of artists yeah you know which bar it was called doc's clock okay and it was on mission street right in the heart of it of the district you know and had this huge marquee it was it was it was a great place to work it was a lot of fun and uh anyway kevin and joe i mean kevin thompson and joe goldring they would pick up some extra work there. They mm-hmm. would work the door, bar back sometimes. And Joe Burns, the drummer, was a regular. Mm-hmm. So we were already friends and hanging out in there. And Joe and Kevin had a uh, a band together called Touched by a Janitor, which was my favorite local band. It's a great name. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really good you name. You should hear their song titles. Yeah, but that name is like... No, you should hear the song titles. <laughs> Such a good name. Four-legged three-way. That's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good, right? 
Uh, there's more of it. God, I, yeah. you should just get those two in here with a little weed That's and some wine. <laughs> You'll gut buckling. Yeah. Hilarious stuff. But, um, uh, yeah, so I had basically this batch of make or break poems in which, and what I mean by that is that I was either going to throw these things into the trash or I wanted to use them. And the only way I really wanted to use them was by setting them to music. And I was going to put out a book with an accompanying CD okay. of these poems set to music. And so I approached Kevin initially. This is in uh, 2000, just to give you a timeline, 2002. Okay. And uh, Kevin was a little lukewarm about it at first. And just to give you an idea of how long ago this was, I gave him this batch of poems on a floppy disk. <laughs> Not a zip disk? <laughs> no, a floppy disk. Uh-huh. An actual floppy disk. Right. There's probably fucking people listening. They don't even know what, what that is. is. But anyway, um, and it was called Little Bag of Shit. <laughs> that was the collection of poems? That of the floppy disk, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so Kevin took his little bag of shit home, and uh, he read them, and he liked it. And then he, speeding the story up, he recruited Joe, and Joe was a little hesitant at first as well. He read some of the stuff. and But then he came along, and those two basically got Burns, Joey, on drums, who they were later using. Uh, they had fired... Uh, the drummer uh-huh. that they had in Touched by a Janitor, and they brought Burns along as a result of this okay. collaboration, and that's all it was. We There was never a time in this early stage in which we were thinking, let's make a band. It mm-hmm. was Pete's book project. That's basically what it was. And you knew what, you had an idea of what you wanted the music to sound like? or you were Yeah, in- Kevin and I had sat down and we'd had a lot of conversations, or you know, long conversations. And what were the initial, like, like well, we knew, we knew precisely what we did not want, and, which is always a good place to start. Right, I which think. was a dude playing bongos and an upright bass. That and that repetitive drone in the background. Right. And, and, you know, it's, everything is in service to the voice. We didn't want that. We wanted arranged songs. Yeah. You know, and we wanted, and we still work like this today. We wanted to be able to make, the poems stand on its own if it's outside of the mu- if you take it out of the music. Uh-huh. So you got a poem that has some worth or merit on its own, for instance, hopefully. And then you've got a piece of music that the that the poem goes into that could have the poem removed and the voice and have its own singular still force cool as well. Yeah, yeah, still a cool piece of music. And that's still still how we work. I, I have to say, like the Enables record that I'm most familiar with is Endnote, mm-hmm. and and I fucking love that record. And there are times where, you know, the voice, like, I'm happy to hear what you just said. Because there are times where, like, the voice, like... But it, more importantly, that they they can still work together. Well, but there's times when, like, I can't there's, really hear what the voice is doing because the music's getting more intense. That's right. And I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that it, mm-hmm. it adds something to the narrative that's that's happening. That's right. That's exactly right. That's... Thanks for noticing yeah. that. So you, know. you guys discuss, okay, this is what the music, you know, should kind of sound like. Yeah. And... Like I said, I mean, we had this very set idea of the songs being um, just not some piss take thing going on in the background. Yeah. You know? And uh, 
Kevin had some pieces of music left over from a band of his called Timco, which became, uh, there was one of those, which was became Glimpses Audio, which okay. is the first song on InNote. And that was the first song we worked on, just me and Kevin. Yeah. And, you know, we would get together. He and I, would. he'd come over to my place, we'd get a six-pack of beer, and we would just start, he'd have his guitar. Yeah. Just playing acoustically in my room, or I'd go to his place, whatever the case may have been and um so it took it took some time to get this collection of people together a few months i would say or mm-hmm. a few weeks i can't even really recall exactly but joe goldring had a studio at the time and so we would rehearse in there and develop these songs and uh joe was making little demos for everybody to listen to at the same time and Coincidentally, he started playing with Steve Von Till. Mm. Steve Von Till is in the band Neurosis. Mm. Mm. And our first two records were released on their label, Neurot. So Joe was accompanying him on Steve had released a solo record and Joe was playing live shows with Steve. And he got one of these demos into Steve's hands and that basically led to our getting signed that for them releasing yeah. that first record in note and the book project went out the window and suddenly we're a band, Yeah, you know, and, and was that the first real musical project you'd taken? Part no, in? no. I, I had played drums in a punk band called Shotwell a like, few years before, okay. you know, five years before this. And, um, but no, I mean in terms of perform, and I had done, I'd cut a track with, a. I used a poem for a piece of music, a friend of mine, this guy J.C. Hopkins, on a record he made, and I went in and recorded a poem for one of his songs. Outside of that, anything out of a reading, I wasn't really involved performance-wise in anything. And uh, what really got the ball rolling before even uh, Neurot was... I'll never forget this. You know, we were sitting around. We had been rehearsing all day, and Joe Burns, the drummer, says, you know, I'm not going to really feel comfortable recording these until I can play these songs live. And that was the last thing I was expecting to hear, you know. And so one thing led to another, and I got us, I booked this show at Doc's at the bar because uh-huh. they, they would have shows there. Yeah, yeah, And it was no big deal, you know. It was just because we weren't geared toward that. Right. We at that particular point, it was still just a a project. It wasn't a band. It wasn't anything like that. And then all of a sudden, we're scheduled to release a record on Neurod, and we're playing out more often, and uh, we're talking about touring and all of these things that you do as a working band. And it was. It was the last thing I honestly ever expected. Mm-hmm. And I think anybody ever expected. Mm-hmm. And um, so I guess we should credit Neurot a lot with that. Sure. You know, because they obviously saw something that we weren't necessarily looking for, I guess. Right. You know. And yeah, like I said, so the book project went out the window and... But did you, like, how much of a learning curve was there for you to exist within a band? Like just being in the van on the road and doing sound checks and um 
Well, like I said, I had played in a band. I toured. Okay. I mean, but those guys were heavies. I mean, in yeah. the sense that they were already very well seasoned touring, working musicians. Yeah. Um. And really, between the four of us, because I I would tour with bands. I was a projectionist for a band at one time. You know. Uh-huh. So between the four of us, I mean, who knows how many tens of thousands of miles sure, we sure. had logged in right. the U.S. alone, you know. Those three guys having the bulk of it, um, especially Kevin and Joe. But, um, yeah, it, you know, they were very patient with me in the beginning. Yeah. Well, they I were mean, encouraging, and, but also patient. And how, I, how did the first gig go at Docs? Oh, it was just sort of... Um, passable, I guess. I don't know. Well, you know, I mean, for me... I mean, there wasn't... It wasn't a spirited performance, I would say. It wasn't... Sure. I mean, but, like, you know, we're sitting in this room, I got a mic in my face, and I'm fine. But if I have to do this in front of people, I become a nervous wreck pretty quickly. You know, I... That was what was funny, because... Maybe because I was still in the mindset of this just being something that we're doing for Joe... And we're doing it as a favor... Right. So I wasn't nervous at all. I mean, I was just reading these things in these appointed spots where I was supposed to talk and then shut up and talk mm-hmm. and shut up. And I was just trying, all I was thinking about is, okay, fulfill your role. Just do your job. And, you know, we played for, I don't know, 45 minutes mm-hmm. or something, and that was it. Yeah. yeah. You know, we had nine or ten songs, so... And then that led that show actually led to a couple of additional shows down the road, you know. Yeah. And uh, you know, people started calling the house about, "Hey, I'm calling from bottom of the hill. I hear you guys are great. You, you know, I've got this slot open. You want to play it? Bottom of the hill. Right. Yeah. Or uh, Hemlock. Right. You know, our friend Tony. You know, he says, "Hey, I hear you got this this thing going on because." Joe and Kevin had kind of this cachet or cool quotient with janitor. I mean, because they were great. Uh, It was a three-piece, two guitars, drums, that's it. No vocals. And they were just doing really interesting music. And the songs were very short, but they would cover a lot of ground in a very short amount of time. In really interesting ways. Not to say that they... It wasn't so much t- tempos or speed or time signatures. It was what they were doing. I mean, you could watch those guys playing, and you couldn't tell who was playing what. That's fucking great. You know, among the yeah. guitarists. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. you could not. Right. You couldn't figure out who was playing. It was so they were they were fantastic, and in many people's eyes, they were the best band in San Francisco. Yeah. Mine included. Right. And so when we first started, you know, I felt like kind of an, an imposter. You felt like. Because I was, you know, I was trying to get a whiff of their pixie dust kind of thing, you know. Them specifically. Yeah, and in a way I was. Yeah. Because I really did, I not only liked these guys a lot and they were my friends, but I really admired what they were doing. And they, I couldn't think of anybody else that I would want to do what I was trying to do. You had the cats. Yeah, I couldn't think of doing it with anybody else, honestly. Right. And... And I wasn't all that surprised by their hesitation in the beginning. I actually was relieved. You mm-hmm. know, I would have been a lot more wary if they'd been uh, 
you know, maybe too gung ho about it. Yeah. Um. And, uh, so by the time I kind of lost my train of thought again, but I'll just move the story along. By the time we got to the second record, you know, we were already a full fledged. Yeah. We had that mentality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when you listen to the you put those two records side by side, mm. what do you what what do you hear is like the main difference? Uh, Not a lot, to be honest, <laughs> because I was still feeling pretty lost on the second record. Yeah, yeah. Was it the recording studio that got you, or the just the, everything? Yeah, everything. Yeah, it's it's always kind of daunting when you hear your voice, your recorded voice. Dude, I don't know how fucking vocalists do it. Yeah, it's. It's really, uh, yeah, it's daunting. I can't really think. I mean, all I could hear in my voice was just this California dude. That's all you hear. Yeah. Yeah. And I hate it. Right. And uh, so to, I, I, was, I was battling with that. I was trying to learn these exceedingly and increasingly complicated compositions uh-huh. Because you have to understand that Kevin and Joe, even by the time Enablers was rolling around, they had already played in various bands with each other for at least 10 years. They had a thing that was They had this so whole solid. they had a whole language and communication system and instinct that yeah. they had cultivated by playing with each other for all that time. And um so it took me a while to 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 crack that, to get inside of that. And I always knew that until I did that, I was going to, it was going to be a struggle. But you also don't want to be a third wheel. You want to be... That's right. Uh, That's absolutely... Uh, uh, an, an interesting part of the conversation. And this is where their patience and encouragement came in. Right. You know, it, it's funny, but it's true. Sure. You know, I mean, Joe used to just tell me, mantra-like, listen, Pete, just, just listen just listen because you were you were rushing the stuff i would rush were, yeah. i would i would i was trying i was trying to compensate because i felt like i would be going on too long and i was i was afraid of having a tin ear and just being an utterly and completely unmusical but i mean to be fair like anybody would have a challenge finding the music in reading text over, That's right. I mean, when, when you're playing with a group of musicians, you're playing a written piece of music. You yeah. know, you're listening for the changes. You know, you you have an idea of when things are going to happen. Right. The parameters. You know, yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like anyone would have a fucking pain in the ass time figuring out a way to not just like sit in the music, but to have it, you know, come to life and be something that is compelling to listen to. That's right. And that's exactly right. And when you're not singing, you know, placement is king. Right. So, and knowing when to shut up. But I mean, how much were those guys accenting what you were doing? Like, if you if you deliver a line with like you know, mm -hmm. you know, with with some with some thunder to it. Yeah. Do they continue playing? Like, you oh know? no, 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 no. We, they really respond to things. They actually encourage me. Well, they don't really have to anymore because you know we've grown one big ear together now. So, mm -hmm. um. But I, you know, I can remember specifically on a song like uh, Tundra, mm -hmm. which is also, it's the title track of a record. I can remember Kevin just saying, do you remember that movie Downfall? It was a German movie about Hitler in the bunker, the last days of... Oh, that's the one where everyone does their own subtitle over him yelling? 
Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know that movie. Yeah. yeah. Well, I love that movie. Uh-huh. And uh, I think I turned Kevin on to it. <laughs> and he told me, he said, man, you know what you need to do in that section? You got to be Hitler in the bunker at that oh, certain scene, yeah. you know? Yeah, he, he says, that's that what this kills it. That's what that part means. Yeah. You know, that's what it needs and that's what it means, you know? He says, you got to be a complete fucking Nazi about it, you know? Yeah. Just draw on that performance, you know? And that's what I did. And from that, um, it was that kind of thing. So it was either kind of taught or told to me or it just could come about naturally and the more we were playing live and the more we were touring the more that would actually happen so there was a lot more interchange and songs would go in somewhat different little directions as a result and Mm -hmm. and that just comes from playing that's with each other you know any musical relationship that's right exactly and so it took me a while and that that was all rooted in just a lack of confidence Mm -hmm. and the more we played live the more confident i became and the more ideas I would get. Because I was really scared in the beginning. I mean, I was really performing from fear. And I would act like a fucking lunatic. Oh, and that's not so good to listen to. No. And so I think people were coming to see this band early on, you know, in those first couple of years, just to see some kind of spectacle. Right. And with some good music thrown in. You know? Right, and uh, and then a, a, as just a, the more we worked and the more we toured and the more shows personally I got under my belt, the more I began to realize that okay, you're scared, it's fear, but why not subvert that fear and use it as a kind of source of energy mm-hmm. and focus? Right. So I was able to su- sort of subvert it to this to listening you know, to what Joe had been telling me. And suddenly I understood it took on all these huge connotations. Yeah. And I said, okay, you can make this musical. I, you know, I don't have to sing, but phrasing is important. Right. Placement is important. The music, the song is the most important. Mm -hmm. So start paying attention. And by doing that, I could just sort of channel these, Ideas that I never would have tried, and I began trying out those ideas just to see what would happen. And over time, the fear just kind of went away. I mean, who doesn't get a little nervous before a show? Sure. um, And I learned, that became like a learning curve, my own little personal learning curve right there. Right. And, yeah. But that's, I mean, that's where music, like, like, as an improviser... So, like a skill I kind of had to to develop and and but it wasn't even something that I thought I would have to develop it was just something that occurred to me one day is like you know you, you play gigs with people you know you play a gig with someone for the first time playing improvised music yeah and you, d- developing this understanding that like it it might not it most likely won't be amazing it very likely won't even be good yeah but you right. know there's certain things that like I'm I'm, I'm kind of listening for or or certain um, bits of excitement that I'm hoping to get and like if those things happen I will say like hey man we got to do this again mm-hmm. you know let's de- right. let's start developing sure. a relationship because there's, there's something yeah. there you know yeah. and it, it, in a way it's just, it's a it's a very base instinctual aspect of making music and it's, I I think with something like enablers 
which is a very specific thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Even if you just put it on paper, it's, it's two guitars and drums and someone, you know, reading right. poems. It's like yeah. it's it's you you can't immediately say, oh, that's just like this thing over here. Like it's very but, much its own thing. Yeah, try as they might, they you know, for a long time, especially in England. Um, <laughs> I realized that probably came came You're out about to talk about writers derision. No, no, it's just. Uh, it's like this whole beat poet thing, this tag that right. I get, you know, that I have to deal with. You know, Enablers is a band led by a beat poet. You know, we've never once thought of ourselves that way. I mean, I've never once thought of myself as a beat poet. Well, but, it's one of those things where it's like, if you listen to it with no introduction, even no context for it, like, that wouldn't be the first thing you would say. But if you write it down, this guy reads poems over music, you would say, ah, beat. That's the only explanation I can think of. Well, it's, it's just poems set to music. Stupidity. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you know, that's what it Those is. are your words. Yeah. But, <laughs> but you go what, public with them, but uh, they're not really dealing with it. They're not really listening to it. They're just. Ah, uh, yeah. I guess. Oh, I was going to say. There's just this strong desire or necessity, particularly among music journalists today, to attach whatever it is you're doing to something that's come before. You know. Well, so people can wrap their heads around it. Yeah, or, I mean, the sooner you put something, and they think they're, they're doing you a favor because people will think, "Oh, well, that's attractive. I'm going to go buy that record." That's not what. That's not how I would react personally. Yeah, and it was Slint. So we had those first three records was just Slint, left, right, right, all, all the fucking time, right. And it really started doing our heads in. You were getting angry about it. Yeah. 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 We really were, and I just thought it was unfair and lazy, like you said, you know. And, I mean, Slint's cool, but... But, you know, I, and so one day I sat down and I listened, I put on the first two records, and I sat down and listened to them, mm-hmm. and then I put on Spiderland, mm-hmm. and I listened to that, and then I went back to the first, our first two records again, and I thought, okay, you can make an argument for this. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and it was also because Slint had spoken vocals, you know, that Mm -hmm. were really buried, you know, Mm -hmm. much more buried than I ever was, Mm -hmm. you know, my vocal ever was, but, and he's mumbling, you know, um, and I'm not trying to take anything away from Slint. I mean, I I loved them. Yeah. They're fucking great. Coming, growing up. I loved Slint, but it's just, if, if you're constantly... If everything you're ever picking up and reading about something you're doing is using the same two fucking references over and over and over again, it's going to really start getting annoying. And even though it's the internet, which is a juggernaut, you have to start saying something, you know. Yeah. Or doing something about it. Because maybe they are, as I said, you know, I put these R2 records up against this other one and thought, okay, I can understand where it's coming from, but enough is enough. Because by the third record, I thought all comparisons were off. It right. just doesn't. There's no comparison anymore. No, no. I mean, but, what they do is they, they, they type out their, you know, four or five sentence sack of shit, and then unless they have to, unless, you know, Madonna dyes her hair blonde, yeah, like they're not right. going to change like right. their four or five sentence no, sack No, I understand shit, this. I, you know? know? I do. And... So you have to reconcile yourself to that. It sucks. And 
but until you do that, it, it can really drive you crazy. And now we just don't care because it's so far removed. And thankfully, a lot of those things have just gone by the they wayside. They just don't matter. I mean, you know. And they don't matter. You know, you get, like, I remember the first but time. But it does help when you don't have to see it anymore as well. Right. You know, out of sight, out of mind. I because... remember the first time I toured Europe, uh, I had had two records out at the time, one of which was on Zodic, which is, you know, John Zorn's record mm-hmm. label. It was like a 30-day tour. And whatever country we were in, I would look at, like, you know, what was written about the show. And, like, I can't, you know, read the language. Yeah. But I would see, you know, all this, oh, like, sure. gobbledygook. And he would say, John Zorn, John Zorn, John Zorn. Yeah, of course. And, and it's like, I, he's my friend. <laughs> I've played with him, you know, but, like. But what's he say about it? I mean, he doesn't give. He doesn't even look at that shit. I'm just okay. saying, it's like you know what they're selling is like. This is a guy who's recorded for this label, but it's like they're just looking for the cheapest, quickest way to you know put a label on it and keep pushing it down the. Of course, but that's that's my point. The problem I have with it is they feel like they're doing you a fucking service, and it's not. I just don't think you can. You're ex- just retreading very, very charted territory. You know that and, may but, or but may it's not, not be true. Reasonable to expect any any. Insight. I guess not. Yeah. They're not, I mean, there are writers out there that there do. There are. You know, you know and I, I can name a few who I think are I great can, yeah. and are, are open-eared yeah. and open-hearted, you know. Yeah. Um, and aren't tastemakers along the lines of a vice or well, I mean, pitchfork, you know, those fucking things. Do people me. even pay attention to that shit anymore? I hope not. I, really I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I really feel for young kids who feel like they have to or are compelled to read those things to... Discover. I, I, I wonder to disco- if people still, That's why those magazines fucking exist, man. It's so people can discover what's so-called cool or not. That's why they're tastemakers, and it's disgusting. You know, let people find these things for themselves. Man, I'll tell you, I remember, I've, I've told this story before, but age 13 at summer camp, I had this one uh, counselor, Jeff, who was, he was cool as shit. We would hang out mm-hmm. with Jeff. We would hang, you know, hey, man, you know, tell us stories, da 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 And Jeff laid two things on me he laid naked lunch Ugh. by burrows and rain dogs by tom waits on me mm-hmm. and he was like man just check this out you'll fucking love it mm-hmm. you know and it's like mm-hmm. thanks jeff like yeah. ever since then yeah like, right i've right. been on that path that's right know? that's right and that's cool you know it's it's much cooler to do that the than keys go, to the horizon yeah. go through a phase where you wear a fedora or have like a soul patch <laughs> you know <laughs> And yeah. instead of just looking at whatever horseshit, you know, Kendrick Lamar fucking nonsense is happening. That's right. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to shit on Kendrick, but. Well, uh, I'm just saying, you know, in the case of Pitchfork, it just seems to me. And, you know, I'll, I'll give him this. It's very well written. Is it? Yeah. Okay. The, I think the writers are good. I don't know well enough to. But they just seem to. And this is this is this is one of the bees in my bonnet about it is they seem to be giving it a chance no they like to be wise asses yeah and, but they're going to coax you into believing that they're giving it a chance and they're going to approach it in this thorough and uh structured and researched way and then they're going to say yeah but then again it doesn't do it you know or right. they're going to say this is the best thing to come down the pipe since pizza Right. Go out and get this record right now. Right. That band's going to blow up. You know, this is the kind of power that I don't know now because I've just turned my back on. It's so it. different now. Yeah, I, I would hope so. But, but, no, but, 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 you know, so then they blow up and then they this band releases the second record or the next record down. and they just fucking Chew rip it, it a new asshole, you know? Rinse. And <laughs> I've talked to bands who have 
gone through this cycle. Yeah. And you can, their crowd sizes are totally fucking diminished as a result of these. Really? And these, it's, put it this way, man. If I read it, 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 it this was always the case. If I read a bad review, I want to hear that record. You want to hear the bad review? I want to hear that record. <laughs> Me too. You know, for all the reasons why you hate it. I want to hear it. Right. And I've done it. And I loved it. You know, not um, always. Some cases, in some cases, they were right. It was shit. It, uh, it was bad. It was embarrassing. But more often than not, it was especially coming from a pitchfork. But you know that band Pelican? Yeah. I remember this was like 10 years ago. Like, you know, the first one or two Pelican records to come out. And mm. it was cool. Everyone loved it. Blah, 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 blah. And then they put out another record and Pitchfork wrote this review. Whatever the fucking asshole that wrote the review you know, he gave him like a very low rating, like a two or something. Uh-huh. And then spent the whole review talking about how bad the drummer sucked. <laughs> Everything was like a shot at the drummer. Yeah. Like, and it's the same. What fucking, do you think that guy plays? Well, yeah. it's the same guy from the first two records playing just as just as well as he previously had. But the narrative, like the whole thing, like shifted around this band. No, so I'm saying, like, what do you think the re- the writer plays? He's a fucking drummer. Yeah. <laughs> or he's uh, frustrated I, drummer. But. The whole narrative, uh, fucking around Pelican change is like, oh, that that kind of Matthew. Yeah, they've lost the it. Shitty drummer. They've lost it. They're yeah. no longer worthy. Yeah, don't uh, waste your, don't waste your ears. But uh, all that, it, I, I think, is about power. Oh, of course. You know, it's about you know. Of course, yeah. You, <laughs> that and that's what's despicable about it, to me. Yeah, is that's too much power, and. If you want to look at it in the bigger picture, like we were talking about a few minutes ago, it's you're talking about how f- how low the standards have gone in terms of, it, you know, you could argue that 30 years ago you had this wealth of information and worthy information. Mm-hmm. And you could pick and choose from all these different magazines and all these other sources of information about music, say just for argument's sake. And today you go online and it's just, it's a bunch of recycled information. Right. And very, very few people can survive it. Man, can rise right. above the the flock and right. become these tastemakers. And when they do, the peacock feathers just get longer and bigger and broader. And to me, that's just death. Well, so here's a chip on my shoulder that I've never really talked about. I've talked about it, like, privately with people, but something that fucking, like, I'll never get over this. And I I got into an argument with a friend about this the other day, and I I grew up poor, Uh dirt poor. You know, we had no heat in the house growing up. I had to, you know, put on, you know, three or four sweaters at night going to sleep. and, And there's a part of me that will always resent, truly resent people who have had an easier time. Mm-hmm. Sure. I, I've, I've talked to my of therapists course. about course, it. I've talked yeah. to friends about it, and I know you know. And this is you know a pretty broad topic, but but that's not such a self righteous thing. I don't think. Well, here's the thing, though, is that like in I know two things. You know, okay. I, I I know music and I know food. Like these are <laughs> okay. the two things I've been doing since I was a kid. Yeah. And, and when I see people, whether it's a goddamn fucking pitchfork writer. Or a goddamn, you know, Vampire Weekend, whatever dumbass band people are into. Or Williamsburg. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or or whether it's, you know, some fucking smarmy little writer from Eater or some, you know, sure. dipshit hotshot chef <laughs> yeah. who never, you know, made his bones as a fucking line cook. Mm-hmm. Right. I will never, like, like the anger and the resentment that I 
battle mm-hmm. as I'm like dealing with this sure. person's you know information or uh-huh. their output. Uh-huh. I'll never get over it, and I've resigned myself to the fact that's fucking okay. That that's right. Yeah. I was just gonna say. I mean, I, I used to I used to try to convince myself that uh, well, who cares about fucking pitchfork? You know, right? Just don't care about it. Just take take care about other things. You know, this isn't important. But but then you know to counter that argument. You have, I think you're raising worthy and certainly viable arguments as to why you don't, as to why you truly don't well, like I mean, him. But this- and those reasons are hopefully for the greater good, you know, you're, you're thinking not just about, it's not your own personal peeve. Right. It's about other people. And when I mentioned earlier, it's just, I mean, how dare you just try to shape and form a young person's taste or desire, you know. Um, this is what's cool to listen to, you know. And I'm talking about kids that are 14, 15 years old who aren't. The message seems to be you're not allowed to go out and find things for yourself. You have to listen to what we say is cool. Right. And this is in an a- at an age in which everything is brittle, everything is delicate. You're coming into terms with your own identity. See, that's the kind of picture I'm looking at. Right. And now you're telling some kid how he or she has to be cool. And this is an even bigger picture because now you're talking about advertising and marketing. And we all know what fucking devils those people yeah, are. Yeah. So that's the kind of approach. That's where I reason. It's it's a far bigger problem. You know? Yeah. They're just addressing it as one little fork in the road. You know? But, you know, as you talk about these standards going lower, what drives me nuts, what drives me fucking batty is that these sons of bitches that are, you know, handling this thing, you know, whether it's, you know, the pitchfork or eater, which is, you know, the mm-hmm. corollary, yeah. the corollary of it in, in yeah. the food world. These are the fucking jocks. These are the, That's right. the frat boys and the sorority girls. And it... You could boil pasta in my blood as I talk about this right now because, like, these sons of bitches haven't been out in the streets, you know? Yeah. I I, I was making my fucking bones mm-hmm. waiting on subways in Brooklyn at 3 o'clock in the morning after having played for two people coming home humiliated. Yeah. yeah. Who the fuck are you <laughs> to, to, to even put pen to paper to try and begin to understand what it's like to experience that? Some people get all the chances, man. Oh. They get all the breaks. I know? got, yeah. I got, They're just raised into it. Yeah. You know? So wait, when did you come to New York? I got here in uh, 2008. What happened? You said fucking San Francisco. Yeah, I, I was, I was, I, I, I had really had it, and I'm glad I did. That's a town that gets small pretty quickly, huh? Oh yes, it, yeah. it's small geographically, physically, right. it's really small. Right. Um. Yeah, I just, I, I, you know, I came to the conclusion, you know, throughout the 90s and early aughts, I guess mostly in the 90s, I was coming out to New York a lot. Yeah. You know, I had mentioned that, you know, I lived in a couple of places in the Mission that were kind of banned right. touring stops. And so I had made a lot of friends that way, and a lot of these bands were from out here, from the East Coast and in New York. So I was lucky enough, you know, I'd get a phone call and say, hey, man, you know, you want to come out for 10 days, we're going to do this East Coast swing, you want to come out and watch the apartment, Yeah. feed the cat, you know. So I was doing that a lot. So I had planned on moving here. There were two times prior 
that I was basically in a position and making moves yeah. to come out here. And the first time I didn't was because of a girl, and the second time was because of this job at this bar that we've talked about, mm. Doc's Clock. And then it was love that brought me out here. Yeah. I was, um, my girlfriend at the time, she had been living in Williamsburg, still lives in the same place. It's old storefront. But she was living in Berlin and, uh, you know, enablers were touring over there quite a bit. And so she was a friend of all of ours anyway. Right. She was from San Francisco and, um, she and I just got together over time and we had this long distance relationship for close to two years. And she just said, look, I still have my place in New York. You're fed up with San Francisco. Why don't we just all leave Berlin? We'll move there. I'll move back into this place in New York and you can, and that's what I did. Yeah. And drove out. Uh, a good friend of mine who, <clears throat> was living out here, still is, Mike. Flew, he he and I had met each other in San Francisco. He had lived there for a few years, but he had moved back here to New York. But he flew out to San Francisco and he made the drive across with me. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. And, uh... I've never done that drive. Really? Coast to coast. Really? Yeah, it's a great drive. Oh, right? it's great. This is a weird country. Yeah, it's fucked up. It's a strange country. Yeah. Yeah, I've done it many times, so... I wouldn't want to do that drive now, though. Oh, I would. Just for the pure intensity of a little, a little bit of that. But it's this is a beautiful country. It's a beautiful country. It's a beautiful country filled with a lot of in beauty. I mean, stunning. Yeah, well, yeah of There's course. There's a lot of ugliness right now. There is a lot of ugliness. You know, America. I think, in a lot of ways, is a politically and socially is a desperate maybe even ancient place right now. Um, but, you know, you, you go see the American Southwest, you go see mm -hmm. the Badlands up in South Dakota. Yeah, you, you can't fuck, you can't take anything. And that will restore something. I it agree. really will. It restores some kind of love, maybe it's love or faith or something. And... You know, quite honestly, until this motherfucker starts operating in the order of a Joseph Stalin, he's just another asshole yeah. to me. He's just a fucking asshole. Yeah. And he's a billionaire, and billionaires tend to only care about themselves and their money, and that's, unfortunately, that's what we have as a president. But until this guy starts, until he starts ordering, personally ordering executions or setting up mock trials to severely ruin people's lives yeah. <sighs> you know maybe he just touches upon every nihilistic instinct i have in my body but you know i we've got what three more years of this schmuck maybe less but maybe more maybe more <laughs> I don't know how, how did I i'm sorry I, no you know, but i took it, us into look, this man it's good you just did something that I've found myself doing, and it's the right thing to do, which is just not even say his fucking name. I can't. But here's here's the problem. I can't say his I, fucking name. I, I, I'm Jeremiah. I'm I am with you, brother. <laughs> I really am. Right. But, and I can hear all the little. I just I fucking. I hate can it. hear. <laughs> and this is this is true. That 
you're right where they want you, man. You know, and it's true. That's what they want you to think. That's how he gets away with all this shit. You know, and that is a cynical, probably the most cynical and dreadful way to go about influencing people, but that's what he does. Right. And... He's got no goddamn decency. Like across the board, he just represents the very worst of the human spirit and what it's capable of. Just the very worst. He's just a cackling fucking imbecile. And mm-hmm. I agree. It just it pisses me off. Like, sorry, like <laughs> let me just go down here for a second because, oh, yeah. like, I was talking to some, uh, a coworker yesterday who was telling me that uh, you know her her um, her parents had voted for him because they were lifelong Republicans, mm-hmm. and I just got fucking pissed and I kind of snapped at this person. I was like, "Look, this is not a political. Like, we're we're past the point of politics. Like, he's a That's fucking right. jackass and an animal." And you didn't vote for a Republican. You voted for a jackass and an animal. That's why I'm saying it's. this is a desperate and maybe even ancient place right now. Yeah. Because it's not a political move. Right. It's a, it's a lifestyle choice. It's a, a so-called revolution. People think they're being revolutionary by voting for this guy. He doesn't give the first fuck about a constituency, about a voting base. He's got people working for him who worry about that he doesn't that's like the only thing i dig about him is like how like just straight up he doesn't give a fuck i mean those those kinds of that's a language those are words that he doesn't spend much time thinking about he doesn't have to it it, there's like because he's an asshole there's a weird integrity no i don't think he's just an asshole if if that can be integrity i mean there's there is I mean, I would happily expend energy avoiding an asshole like Donald Trump. I would happily expend. What I'm saying is there is an integrity to how, like, reliably repellent he is. Yeah, okay. I I see what you're driving at. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? He he just doesn't even pretend to have an ounce of decency in his fucking empty core. That's because he doesn't. (laughs) He just doesn't. He just doesn't. So he's just being himself, man. And maybe there's, okay, there's some credit. Merit right. to that, but uh, as you mentioned, he's just a stain. He's right. a human stain. He's filth. He represents everything that is wrong and unacceptable in a human being. When you think about how much, oh, I got to tell you something. When you yeah. think about how much <laughs> uh, more enjoyable life was for everyone. Mm. When he was just a page six fucking joke. That's right. There's just no argument. There's no argument. No. Um. Anyway, so enablers are yeah, still. But okay. Yeah, <laughs> enablers yeah, are still Let's going. Go. Enablers are still going. Oh yeah, absolutely. You guys just put out a record. Going like, strong within yeah. the last year. No, we, two years. Yeah. The one that had patent that has patent on it. No, that's no. 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 I got it wrong. That's blown realms installed explosions. Yeah. That's the fourth LP. Okay. The fifth is uh, The Rightful Pivot, which came out in 15, I think. Okay. But we're working on a new record as we speak. And the whole band's in New York now? No. It's just me and Sam, the drummer, Sam Uh Ospavat. Oh, yeah. I think you know Sam. Yeah, I just met him uh, a couple months ago. Yeah. Yeah. Because you had Ava on the show, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I played, I split a bill with Sam... um, I don't know. Yeah, a few months yeah, ago. He's I playing with Ava too. Yeah. In unnatural, unnatural ways. ways. Yeah. So um So Sam and I are out here. Kevin is in Oakland. 
where he's been for many years now. And it was how we got Sam, actually. Yeah. Um, and Joe is currently, uh, Joe Goldring is currently living in Marseille, France. Oh. But his work brings him back to the States on occasion. He still has his apartment in San Francisco. Yeah. He's living in France. Yeah. He's, he's got a lady there. Yeah, Marseille is. could do a lot worse. I'm very envious. Marseille is great. You ever been there? No, I've only been to the airport in France. The airport in France? Uh, the, the, uh, uh, Charles de Gaulle fucking uh, Paris. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so are you guys? You guys are finishing a record? Uh, we have started, started recording. Yeah. Um, with Studio G. You oh, you and I Tony? were talking about Tony. Yeah. No, not with Tony personally. Alexi, yeah. Alexi, right, right. He's yeah. a good dude. Yeah. He's, He's funny as shit. You kind of look like him. You guys look alike. That's funny that you say that because yeah. every time I see him at shows and stuff, yeah. I'm like, you have the same eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. just dawning on me. It's weird. He's Jewish, right? He, yeah, he's got to be. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he's a good cat. Yeah, he's a good guy. I want great I, engineer. He is right. Oh, he's great. I've been meaning to to get into the G and do something with him. You should. He's great. Yeah, you know he he. You know, bless his little white socks. I mean, he had acquired X amount of credits, and so he had a free day. Oh. And he gave us one of his free days. So we were in Studio G for like eight hours, completely free. With Lexi. Yeah. That's great. That's great, right? A little fucking Frenchman. Yeah. <laughs> He's a good cat. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, so we did about five, six songs there, which have proven... So we're going to release an EP. Yeah basically from that recording session and then we're going to tour in june of 18 and then after that tour we're going to go into a studio in marseille uh -huh. probably and uh work on a whole new record so we yeah. should have something who knows you know if we do if everything goes right maybe we can have something we'll definitely have the ep for the tour yeah and by the end of the year and when's the tour? The tour is in June of next year, oh, of 18. Sure. Yeah. And hopefully we'll get a show here. Yeah, you should. It's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. That shouldn't be a problem, right? No, it's, no, no. Yeah. No. Um, Fucking Mercury Lounge or? Yeah, we played, the last time we played here was there with yeah. Toby. <gasps> right. With K.O. Dot. I went to that show. Did you? But I just missed Enablers. I got there in time to see K.O. Dot. I wanted to okay. see Enablers. Are we done? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, that was a great show. It was, that a, was a really fun. good show. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, yeah, they it, were great. This has been really good. Yeah, we're talking, sorry. Pete. No, it's good. It's perfect. Oh, okay, good. It's we're at uh, uh, ninety-seven minutes. Yes. Yeah, okay. Right on. Thank you, man. This little drunken adverb and chronic. All right. Formation. That was Pete Simonelli of the band Enablers. Hope that you guys enjoyed that. I thought that was a really enjoyable conversation. Uh, sorry about the volume levels. I know it peaked a couple of times, and uh, I can do better than that. I will do better than that. Thanks to Pete Simonelli for coming over and talking. Check out the Enablers. Sorry, check out Enablers. That's enablers.bandcamp.com. Dig in. There's about uh, three or four good records of just really fucking awesome music and poetry. Go to the 5049 website. 
www.5049records.com. Dig in, check out some past episodes, and you know what? Buy some music. Get some music. It's there. It's, uh, it's pretty inexpensive. That's it. Um, we'll be back next week. Until then, hope you guys are all staying warm, and I uh, hope you have a great week. All right, talk to you soon. Bye. The seahorse. Graceful, dear creature. Rose on.